What you are hearing is a 1980 arcade classic, Moon Cresta. To the modern observer, it might not look very impressive. Small and abstract representations of spaceships shooting dots at each other over a black background representing outer space. You know, the 80s arcade space shooter cliche. But in its time, a game like this was about the most exciting and technologically advanced it got. Now, you're listening to a clone of Mooncresta. And if it sounds even more primitive, it is because this is running on Apple II. The splash screen of this game is bold and colorful. It reads, Serious Software Presents SpaceX. Copyright 1981. Below that, there's a short list of the enemy sprites along with the amount of points it yields. And at the very bottom of the screen, but still pretty large and very readable, it says, Buy Nazar. On the first screen of the game, the full credits. You don't have to beat this game to know who made it. No, no, no. You launch it, and you are to be reminded who made this game. Games by Nasser were popular within the Apple II hobbyist community because in their time, they were the only ones that could successfully recreate the fast action arcade games of the time on a platform that was deemed not powerful enough, like the Apple II. In a way, Nasser can be considered the main culprit of launching the Apple II as a gaming platform and of inspiring a whole generation of computer hackers, and by hacker, I mean just a very skilled programmer, that years later would revolutionize gaming. And today, I want to tell you all about him. Why? Well, because I have never heard anyone, live or otherwise, utter his name nor his deeds despite being super interesting. You see, Nasser developed revolutionary techniques that are used to this day, like page flipping, which is a form of screen buffering, that allowed the smooth screen scrolling action games neat. PC games back then used to flicker a lot, had choppy scrolling, and in general just had terrible performance. But Nasser's games played just like the most demanding arcade games of its time, such as SpaceX and Gorgon, which were clones of Mooncresta and Defender. This fast action quality on the Apple II became known as Nazirness among his fan base. And for a while, he was doing alright. But since this is the early 80s in North America, so the crash of 83 happened, and Nasser retired from making games. Some years later, Nasser would appear in video game credits again, but not alone. His name would be listed along other legendary names like Sakaguchi, Uematsu, or Amano. I am Seiji, and this is Bonus Bonus Barrel, Episode 9.
1998, in Dallas, Texas, at the offices of Iron Storm, a very special reunion took place. This reunion was attended by all the big names from the Apple II game scene of the 1980s, like Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple and the designer of the Apple II, Bob Bishop, creator of some of the very first games on the Apple II and the Apple Vision demo, Bill Butch, best known for his pinball games Raster Blaster and Pinball Construction Set. The man behind this reunion was no other than the legendary John Romero, who was one of the founders of Ion Storm, which at the time were in the middle of developing the infamous Daikatana. Romero, of course, is famous for being one of the founders of id Software, where he worked as the main designer and programmer in all of their big early hits like Commander Keen, Wolfenstein 3D, Doom, and Quake. Before Romero became his later rockstar self, he was one of many talented programmers making games for the Apple II, which was arguably the most popular platform for hobbyists in its time. And before diving deeper into this, I want to make a little parenthesis here because it's hard to really explain a concept that I have in mind without a bit of contextualization. You see, it might seem obvious to note it, uh, but computers used to be a very expensive and exclusive equipment. The early history of computing is tightly linked to academia and military research. A computing equipment was only in the hands of very, very few people. And in that context, it is not hard to imagine that the use of computers was a very serious and official endeavor. And even so, from the very beginning, you have people trying to use this new technological capacity for the purpose of, um, well, shenanigans. I think it is in the nature of some people to just try to have and make others have just plain old fun. Nowadays, games are a real business, a business that generates billions of dollars and creates a lot of good jobs for people around the world. So it is easy to justify making and playing games and having fun with them, but uh, back then, well, not so much. And still, the early history of video games is full of stories of people going out of their ways to use computers to make and play games. For example, people would break into computer labs in the middle of the night to fiddle with computers, and even solve very complex and technical and mathematical problems just to have fun. These early games planted the video game seed in other people's heads and a community of hobbyists grew and organized around the very idea of using computers for entertainment purposes. So when the first personal computers started to come out in the late 70s, Hobbyists were anxious to experiment with them more freely and create and play more and different kinds of games. The main reason why the Apple II ended up being so successful for game development was mainly because Woz is the way he is. Woz has a playful mind, he likes silly jokes and he likes video games. And so the Apple II was in a way designed to support games. It had a color display, graphic commands, sound and even circuitry for game paddles. Features that other machines at the time didn't offer because they weren't really required. Let's, let's take a look at the Apple II. Sure. Let's go ahead and, for, for both both machines, you use the same uh, CPU, right? The, uh, yeah. The, the 6502. It's odd enough. This this computer has three rows of memory, and if you take those out, it's actually got. This is Steve Wozniak. 
talking about the design of the Apple II. Unheard of color. Nobody thought color would ever be built into a low-cost product at all. Color generators might cost a thousand bucks, at least hundreds of dollars by the cheapest methods known, with hundreds of parts mixing all these analog signals and varying phases to change colors. I thought of a way to do it with zeros and ones and just um, what the pattern you load in turns into a color and it worked. Lucky, it was a lucky, lucky concept. The graphics, you could just type something into memory, like I said, and pop up a color screen on your, on your um, television or a letter A or a letter B. All of a sudden, the microprocessor, just what it stores in memory is what you see. So that was a beautiful concept. There was, I, I wanted, I had worked on video games at Atari, so I actually built in one chip in here and a little connector that, that actually gave you paddles. You ran a little wire outside and we delivered it with paddles, controls you could turn to play games. Gaming and color went together and graphics, and they were very important to me that a computer was going to be the heart of the modern arcade games. So it was really a start of computer graphics. The early Apple II games were very primitive compared to what was going on in the arcades at the time. Uh, but again, this inner force in people to struggle and fight for fun is so fascinating to me. Which leads me to Nasser Jabelli, who, by the way, was also an attendee at that 1998 Apple II reunion at Ironstorm. Back in the early 80s, Nasser was putting out games that seemed impossibly fast for its time and its platform. He also programmed some of the first 3D shooters of the Apple II, like Horizon or Zenith. Compared to today, programmers back then had to have a very deep knowledge of the hardware they were running on. Memory was very restricted, and the way data was stored and copied, and especially for games, along with how the graphical interface worked, was key. Also, programming was done at a very low level, and for the case of the Apple II, this meant 6502 assembler. The 6502 was a very widespread 8-bit microprocessor that was used in many computers and video game consoles like the Commodore 64, Atari 2600, and even the NES. If you don't know much about programming, let me put it this way, and let's use the following example. Say, person 1 asks person 2 for a glass of water. That's pretty straightforward, right? Well, person 1 could also have asked person 2 to go to the kitchen, grab a glass, fill it up with water, and bring it over. These two requests can be equivalent given the right circumstances. The difference is that one is way more specific, but is also longer and inconvenient. As you can see, the instruction, bring me a glass of water, is information that can be expanded into more information, which in turn can be expanded into even more information. Well, programming in assembly or machine language will be equivalent to, let's say, ask a person to stand up, turn 45 degrees, take 10 steps northwest, 5 steps to the west, lift your right arm 5 inches, extend your right arm, grab doorknob with right hand, twist right wrist 30 degrees, push door, take 5 more steps, release doorknob, and, uh, well, you get the idea. But it doesn't stop there. Apart from all that, you also have to take into account that you have to be very efficient. You're making a game after all, so it needs to be responsive. You have to keep the frame rate steady and even more if it's an action game. Well, 
Nazir, in that sense, was a bit of a superhuman of sorts. Nazir Javeli was John Romero's idol and his biggest inspiration growing up, and in 1998, at this Apple II reunion I keep mentioning, Romero was able to record a very special interview with Nasser. Um, yeah, because you were at the front of everything. Well, first of all, I'm just honored. Uh, it's amazing to me that this many people, when John first contacted me, it was so nice of him, the email that he sent me, um, I couldn't believe. Well, first of all, I was away from game business. I didn't know. I knew of his work, but I didn't know him but by name. And when I found out this guy is writing all these nice emails to me, I was just amazed. It's just amazing that this many people uh, remember. Yeah. I thought I just did some work and entertained people, and it's forgotten by now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and actually, John knew more about me and my games, actually my work, than I do. Well, <laughs> still does. And the legends about the mini assembler. Yeah. Uh, I mean, stories that's, and those are the games. That's why people like today are game designers, is because they played your stuff. They had to learn somewhere, you know. They had to play your games and just well, look that, at them and go, wow. It could be said that Romero's quest for Nazirness, in a way, is what led him to helm a revolution in PC gaming years later. Part 2. The Expired Visa. Released in 1997 in Japan, Final Fantasy was supposed to be just that, a final fantasy, a last hurrah before the seemingly inevitable fallout of Squaresoft. But as we all know, Final Fantasy went on to be a success for Square, and immediately after started to work on sequels. And Hironobu Sakaguchi and his A-team found themselves now in a bit of a pickle. One small problem they had is that they couldn't really fit a sequel into the world of Final Fantasy. So, instead of forcing it, it was decided to take a new direction and to not include any of the characters and locations of the first game. That eventually turned out well and became a series mainstay. The bigger issue was actually an expired work visa. Turns out that the main programmer of the team, who was also the one who coded the first Final Fantasy, was forced to return to his country because his work visa had expired. Now, normally, I would imagine, you would simply find someone else to finish the job. But there wasn't really someone like Nasha. So instead, the rest of the team moved to Sacramento, California, to finish the project there. Let that sink in for a minute. So, a bunch of Japanese guys, along with the computer equipment, and dev kits, and this is 1980, so the machinery was likely quite inconvenient to be moved around, let alone moved across the ocean because the one guy couldn't stay in Japan to make a Final Fantasy game. And apparently, both Famicom sequels were actually completed in California. This is quite ironic because none of those got released outside of Japan originally. I entertain myself thinking that the only two Final Fantasy games developed outside of Japan 
are the only ones that didn't get released outside of Japan. You now might be thinking, like, what kind of guy is, is this guy? So that the rest of the team had to move and follow him around. Well, one very important reason why they had to prioritize the programmer of the team was because of how this particular programmer worked. Among other qualities, he was famous for programming in assembly from memory. So the team had to work really quickly, otherwise he might forget the code in his head. was finished and he quit for whatever reason. Yeah. So I was stuck with Square by myself. Wow, doing <laughs> Final Fantasy 1 by yourself. Uh, well, no, actually that was the, um, in the second game. The Final Fantasy at the time, the first Final Fantasy, they did hire programmers and they hired all these graphic designers and uh, so it was actual team working on it. Um, but still, it was kind of challenging to work with a group for oh, the yeah. first time for me. Exactly, you're like, wow, I don't get to do the graphics, I don't get to do the sound. Right, right. You know, I had, the story, the idea, all that stuff. It's like, right. well, I get to program. Like I, yeah, I get, you know? I get to program. I don't have to worry about all that stuff. I <laughs> get to program. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. But the only, the only um, difficulty for me was uh, timing. Like, I like to work at a certain time, and I just don't like waiting for the them people, to be finished. Yeah, that's totally... If I wait for two weeks, and if I have to wait for a couple of weeks or even a month, then I might forget what I've done <laughs> in the past. Because you don't. So I don't write down anything. Everything supposedly is in my head, and I could wow. lose all that information pretty easily. <laughs> so, so that. But we overcame that you know, by the time we wrote Final Fantasy. Part 3. Nasha. Before joining Square, Hironobu Sakaguchi was an electrical engineering student at the Yokohama National University. It was here that Sakaguchi met Hiromichi Tanaka, known for his work on Secret of Mana, among other Square titles. And it was him who introduced Sakaguchi to the Apple II and PC gaming. He got hooked on games like Ultima and other adventure games. But like Romero, he also noticed and became a fan of the Nazirness. And here he is talking about Zenith during a panel at a Final Symphony event. そこで、あの、インスティックのバーガーなんですけど、田中博道。ヒロミチ田中原宿。ああ、聖剣伝説。あ、聖剣伝説ですね。インユース。じゃ、シークレットマン。いや、いや、いや、いや。それ、いいね
You'll notice that in Japanese there's a lot of like words that that have to be pronounced a little bit different in this case like zenith is pronounced senis because that is one way that sounds can be represented in the Japanese language so there's a lot of examples where words words that actually come from English are, are pronounced a little bit funny in Japanese this is going to be relevant in a moment a few years later a retired Nasser got introduced to people from Square who were looking for talent to develop uh, some of their first Famicom games. Nasir's games had inspired developers everywhere without really him knowing. I heard that when you went to Square that the programmers there knew who you were. Yes. You they, went there and they're well, like, actually, oh my god. Funny thing. They, say they went there, they, they, Miyamoto introduced me to them and they asked me if I, what, what game have I done? I told them I did some stuff on Apple and some stuff. And they said, "Do you know Nasha?" I said, "No, I don't." I said, "Yeah, he has he's written many games for Apple. Said, His name is Nasha. They call me Nasha." <laughs> and so what games? And I said, "Like SpaceX, this and this." And I go, oh, "I wrote that." And so you're Nasha. <laughs> I don't oh. know about that. You're like, oh, that um, sounds like it might be my name. That might be my name. So they found out, I guess. They, they, they played all my games and they knew the games. They yeah, go nuts? They were, they, were, they were pretty nuts. <laughs> wow. Again, because of the Japanese language, he's, his name, and it is true to this day, if you look at his Wikipedia article in Japanese, it's still spelled Nasha. Nasha Jiberi. So one thing that is really interesting is how Nasser's games had inspired developers everywhere without really him knowing. However, the people at Square were perfectly aware of who they had hired and wanted to showcase some of Nasser's legendary 3D programming techniques, which is the main reason why 3D World Runner and Red Racer exist. And by the way, if Nasser is the main reason why Red Racer exists, then we could also say that Nasser is the main reason behind, arguably, the best moment in video game cinema. Jeez. I love the power glove. It's so bad. Yeah, well, uh, just keep your power gloves off her, pal, huh? The last known game that Nasser worked on was Secret of Mana, and as in his early days, he made sure to make it very, very clear. As Secret of Mana boots up, first comes the Squaresoft logo, then the screen fades to black, then as the music starts, the main menu fades in with the game's title in bright yellow, Secret of Mana, it reads. And at the bottom of the screen, 
has some legal info. Copyright 1993 Square LTD. All rights reserved, licensed by Nintendo. And immediately after, in the empty space between the game's title and the legal info, three words fade in. Program by Nasser. After his name, three more names follow. The composers Hiroki Kikuta, the directors Koichi Ishii, and finally the producers Hiromichi Tanaka. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I was when I saw Man. I don't think you won't you be blown away by me, so. <laughs> oh, I was. Been waiting for a long time. When Mana came out, wow, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, you know, I put the cartridge in, and and it comes up and it said programmed by NASA. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> oh, I couldn't believe it. It was amazing, and then you know just the birds flying across and just how that ring menu system, how fast it was, just the. Everything. It was perfect. Well, it's very nice of you to even remember my name. Oh, jeez. Oh, no one will ever forget it. No one else was, I mean, no one else was called Nasser, you know. And just, yeah, nobody had that weird name. And it, and, it was, and it was on so many games, too. You're just not going to forget. You know, I played 50 games, all Nasser games, you know. Right, but I, I never thought that people would pay attention to who wrote the game, just play the game in the old days. Right. Um, oh, well, they did. Know. I mean... You look at the programmers at, at Squaresoft when you first went there, they knew who you were, you know, right, in a different right, country. Right, right. <laughs> people yeah, pay it's, attention. It's just pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing. You <laughs> do something that you like and, and people you get paid for it and people remember you. <laughs> what great. else can you ask for? Yeah. <laughs> this is as good as it gets. Huh? Yeah, that's great. For someone that liked to showcase his authorship this explicitly, Nasser's name is not that well known within gamers, but his influence, the Nazirness, is definitely very present in the history of video games. Whether you like the fast action of first person shooters or the immersive narrative of JRPGs, I think we owe this genius programmer some recognition. And this is it for this episode of Bonus Bonus Battle. There is so much more I want to say about Nasser Jabelli. His life and his work is so very interesting and his programming prowess was really something special. Especially when one listens to the admiration that Romero, who is an extraordinary coder himself, has for Nasser. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this one. And Bonus Battle will be back next week with our recap of E3 2018. Thanks for listening.